Elder Cuthbert, our faith and prayers continue with you, dear brother. This past year has given me a new vision of the Savior's words as recorded in Matthew. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. In visits to more than thirty stakes of Zion during the year past, my life has been blessed and my faith has been increased as I have observed and experienced the Christ-like love and the quiet, unheralded service demonstrated in the lives of countless true Latter-day Saints. Such examples of charity, the pure love of Christ, are not restricted to geographic location, to age or gender or station in life. Such acts of kindness and love of fellow man seek no praise or reward and are often performed within the humble homes and from the loving hearts of the Lord's devoted servants. Permit me to recount a few such examples from the lives of true followers of Christ. In an early state conference assignment, Elder Paramore and I were blessed to visit the home of a dear brother who, in a tragic industrial accident on August the 26th, 1958, fell from a cooling tower into a hole 35 feet below where he landed on his head and became paralyzed from the shoulders down. In the intervening 31 years, he has survived as one of the longest living quadriplegics in medical history. He was unable to attend the conference meetings, but a brief, thoughtfully prepared video of his life and testimony were presented in the Saturday evening session of conference. He lies not in a bed, but suspended on a circular metal rack where he has received devoted nursing care. 24 hours a day, seven days a week since this accident more than 31 years ago. This brother's whose home we visited following the conference praised his nurses, his priesthood leaders, his home teachers, and many others who during these long years stood by his side and ministered to his spiritual and temporal needs. A wise stake president had called him to be the regular correspondent to the missionaries and the servicemen from his stake. I've been many, inspired many times as I've read his letters sent to bolster the, faith, bolster the faith of these young missionaries around the world. May I quote two lines from one of these recent missionary letters? Christ is the only way to heaven. Commitment to Christ should go hand in hand with commitment to his church. In another stake, in a Sunday morning primary meeting of that stake conference, I met two beautiful daughters of a faithful young Latter-day Saint physician and his devoted wife. The older child was in a wheelchair, and the younger child moved with great effort. Both of these children suffer from a degenerative disease of genetic origin thought to be progressive and incurable. According to medical wisdom, their time in this life is extremely limited. Their eyes were beautiful and clear, full of faith and love of their Savior, whose presence had been made real in their lives by loving parents and grandparents 
and devoted church teachers. To fulfill a deep desire for more children, their devoted parents have adopted two other beautiful daughters from another country. Instead of cursing God, as Job was encouraged by his associates to do in the faith of in face of other face testing burdens. This couple has reached out to these two beautiful additional daughters who now feel the blessing of being reared in a household of faith with love from parents whose hearts and lives demonstrate the pure love of Christ. Following a recent state conference, Sister Lynch and I were blessed to visit another household of faith located in rural Idaho. The young father in this home was suffering from a critical illness. A picture forever etched in my memory is of a mother and five beautiful children together with this dear brother's priesthood quorum leaders. Kneeling around his bedside, pleading with Heavenly Father for the life of this good man, he was then administered to within this circle of faith. It was our blessing recently to again meet this young couple and to hear their beautiful witnessing, their humbling outpouring of spirit of the Lord's blessing in the restoration of this husband's health. In yet another state conference, a dear sister confined to a wheelchair testified to the strength which she had received from feeling the Lord's love through reading the Book of Mormon. Earlier, her devoted husband had been able to help her to adjust to the crippling effects of her illness. Now he was bedridden, and she spoke of the gratitude that the Lord had empowered her with greater strength to be more self-reliant and better care for her own needs. She had even been given additional strength to minister to the many needs of her dear companion, who now tenderly cared for her and had done for so many years. Loving family and church associates had also been helpful so that they were able to remain in their own home with precious memories of early happy family associations. It was President Kimball who said, The Lord answers our prayers, but it is usually through another person that he meets our needs. An incident in the latter part of President Kimball's ministry helped me to better understand his message and the way his own life witnessed to the truthfulness of his inspired counsel. As a stake president during this period, I went to a local hospital to visit a dear sister suffering with a terminal illness. More than 40 years earlier, I had attended school with both this sister and her husband, who had been childhood sweethearts. But they had not been blessed with children of their own, and they had filled this void by his serving as a scout leader and his loving companion as the scout mother to scores of young boys over a generation. As I approached the hospital that day, my heart was heavy with foreboding for what lay ahead in the lives of this choice couple. For weeks this dear brother had stayed with his companion at the hospital day and night to give comfort and ease her burden and the pain of her suffering. As I reached the door of her hospital room that day, I met my friend emerging from his wife's room into the hallway. Unlike my earlier visits, when his countenance reflected the weight of their ordeal, this time his face was radiant and his eyes were aglow. 
Before I could utter a word, he said, You will never guess what just happened. As my wife and I were feeling so burdened, into our room came President Kimball, himself a patient at the hospital where he had recently undergone surgery. He prayed with us, and he blessed us, and it was as though the Savior himself had come to lift our burdens. Many other patients in that hospital, I might add, experienced a similar blessing from one who knew so much of pain and suffering. In my own life, I have experienced much of the Savior's love through the kindness and goodness of many of the Lord's servants. With King Benjamin, I acknowledge that if we were to serve the Lord with all our souls, yet would we be unprofitable servants, and this because of the great love and atoning sacrifice for each of his children. Some months ago, a 90-year-old patriarch and a dear friend of my own father was quietly laid to rest in this valley. My father passed away during the height of the Great Depression in 1932, and ten days later, my oldest brother, age 14, died. During 47 years of my mother's widowhood, this gentle soul frequently visited our fatherless family to give wise counsel and encouragement and priesthood blessings. His example and personal concern, coupled with the goodness of many other priesthood leaders and loving neighbors, helped my mother and her five remaining children face the problems of economic depression and wars and the many worldly influences and daily challenges with which each of us must cope. His life, in many ways, touched scores of others in similar circumstances. To me, he was the epitome of the pure religion described in the epistle of James, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In these challenging times, dear brothers and sisters, the need to minister unto the least of these of our Father's children is so great. How much we need the gift of discernment and wisdom and charity to know how to really reach down and lift up our brothers and sisters to higher ground. I pray that day by day we will strive more diligently to be about our Father's business, to love and to serve our fellow men, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and comfort those that mourn, to hold up the hands that hang down and to strengthen the feeble knees, to believe and live the Savior's doctrine, to follow after Him and put first in our lives the things of His kingdom. And for this I humbly pray in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have just had the privilege of sustaining with our uplifted hands and deep affection Ezra Taft Benson as God's living prophet, his inspired counselors and members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators, and the other general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, of course, we acknowledge those other changes made in the auxiliary organizations. We have heard the statistical report indicating 
a continuing worldwide growth with its, of the Church with its stabilizing influence, which is the product of the inspired doctrine and policies of the Church. In a recent article, a non-Latter-day Saint scholar gave a fresh and most interesting review of this Church and its unpredicted growth since its restoration 160 years ago. He described its growth as a miracle and an incredibly rare event. In 1942, the Prophet Joseph Smith, in answer to an inquiry from the editor of a Chicago newspaper, made the prophetic declaration that the truth of God will go forth boldly till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every year, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. End of quote. During a brief period of weeks, we have witnessed some phenomenal changes in the world, particularly in the Eastern Bloc countries, changes which God-fearing men attribute to the hand of the Almighty in bringing about His glorious purposes to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. Walls have come down, gates have opened, and millions of of voices have chorused the song of freedom. We rejoice in the dawning of a brighter day. The news media has made the events in Eastern Europe appear as a purely political revolution, even though many of the oppressed have recognized it as a religious renaissance and have acknowledged the influence of divine intervention. A prominent national magazine has editorialized on the reasons for this sudden dramatic change. It was an idea. Democracy, they wrote, and its phenomenally successful application in America and some other parts of the world. The article concludes, America's contribution to the world will continue to be in the realm of ideas and ideals. The peoples in in Eastern Europe have slowly but effectively been exposed to ideals of truth and basic rights through messages by satellite, radio, printed materials, even programs and recordings by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, word of mouth, heart-to-heart contacts, and the light of Christ encouraging seeds of truth to seep into their consciousness. A precept here a precept there, and when the opportunity arrived, they confidently seized upon it. The transformation of once mighty man-made empires with such speed and determination has released new springs of faith and hope in the hearts of hundreds of millions of oppressed souls. Where there was despair, now the bright light of freedom shines forth. This could only have happened in such a miraculous way 
by the intervening hand of the Almighty. <clears throat> Is anything too hard for the Lord? Just after the Israelites had walked across the Jordan River from Moab into Canaan, Joshua, Joshua instructed twelve men, one from each tribe, to each take a stone from the dry river bed of the Jordan to be, build a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Paraphrasing Joshua, he said, When your children ask you what these stones mean, you will tell them about the time when Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Tell them that the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan for you until you had crossed, just as he dried up the Red Sea for us. And because of this, everyone on earth will know how great the Lord's power is, and you will honor the Lord your God forever. The Bible is replete with admonitions to remember the mighty acts of God as he has intervened in history for his people. We are witnessing of his we are witnesses of witnesses of his mighty intervening hand in the world even today. God is our father. He is concerned about the welfare of his children everywhere. But even a patient, loving Heavenly Father must weary of tolerating ungodliness as evidenced when the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from out of heaven. Julia Ward Howe felt impressed to share her deep personal feelings for the need of divine direction in the struggle between the states in America. During the night, these eloquent words came into her mind, and she quickly wrote them down. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth a trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. President Joseph F. Smith declared, The Almighty raised up this nation by the power of his omnipotent hand, that it might be possible in the latter days for the kingdom of God to be established in the earth. President Smith continued, His hand has been over this nation, and it is his purpose and design to enlarge it, make it glorious to the end that those who are kept in bondage and serfdom may be brought to the enjoyment of the fullest freedom and liberty of conscience possible for intelligent men to exercise in the earth." End of quote. The religious freedom established in America made possible the coming forth of the plain and precious truths of the Book of Mormon to the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ the eternal God manifesting himself unto all nations. 
these writings are to come unto, uh, unto the Gentiles that they may know that know the decrees of God and repent. It is incumbent upon the members of the church who have had the gift of religious freedom to share this knowledge and testimony to the peoples of the world. Do not underestimate the profound influence politically and socially of the principles of the restored gospel upon all of mankind. Our mission is to save men, wrote Joseph F. Smith. We have been laboring all these years to bring men to a knowledge of the gospel of Christ, to bring them to repentance, to obedience, to God's laws, to save them from error, to turn them from evil, and to uh, learn to do good. End of quote. The opportunity for meaningful service to others is expanding rapidly. To some of us, to some of us, it's just across the street. To others, across the ocean. The destiny of many nations is now being decided. Every generation is crucial. We not be, we may not be responsible for past generations but we cannot escape the responsibility for this present one. It is beyond our comprehension to imagine the billions of souls who depend upon us to bring them some way, somehow, this glorious message of the gospel. Of course, all people will not respond, but all must be given the opportunity to hear and respond after being taught by the Spirit of Christ. Several years ago, upon entering an electrical establishment, Elder James E. Talmadge saw an impressive array of lamps, door chimes, and other electrical items. And having chosen a lamp, he turned the switch to test the light. And lo, he said, there was no light. The attendant told him that the lamps were there as an exhibit only, but were not connected up. He reported, I turned to the bells, but when I pressed a button, I listened in vain for a responsive tinkle, and so with everything else in the shop. Pleasing to look upon, some pieces artistic, all suggestive of usefulness, but as displayed, they were only ornaments and nothing more, for they were not connected up. Upon leaving the shop, Elder Talmadge thought, a burning candle is worth more in terms of utility than the most elaborate of elect electroliers without the current. Then a fitting parallel, parallel came to his mind of the scriptural description of minds and souls darkened and deceived by outward appearances while devoid of spirituality, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. A few years ago, I had an interesting uh, view of the tallest spire in Reykjavik, Iceland, as we were landing at the airport. We were told that this tall building was a church, and after greeting our saints and inspecting our church building, which I was to dedicate, I was curious to visit this other building we had seen from the air with the tall, stately spire. It was very impressive from a distance. However, as we approached the building, we discovered that the front door was made of plywood and padlocked. A sign directed us to the back door. 
This large church building with such an impressive front and its very high steeple, we discovered, was only a shell of a building. Though under construction for some 40 years, the weather-beaten framework was still in place, a reminder of ambitious plans on a grand scale but lacking the faith and foresight for its completion. Continuing with Elder Talmadge, he said, men may erect church buildings from humble chapels to stately cathedrals, but they are only elaborate externals if they are not connected up with the source of divine wisdom and authority through the current of the Holy Priesthood and the vitalizing power of the Holy Ghost. End of quote. Later, as we met in our smaller but adequate little building in Reykjavik, it was comforting to know that it was not just a shell, but had the vitalizing power and spirit of God in that little building. We declare in all solemnity that the Lord is now preparing the nations of the earth to receive the truth He desires them to have. But in order for a person to accept the truth, he must, he must prepare himself by exercising faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Such faith accepts the existence of God our Father, the teachings of Jesus concerning man's dealings with his fellow men, and the teachings concerning Christ's relationship to God as his Son. Once a person has prepared himself to receive and accept truth, it is then sealed upon his heart by the power of the Holy Ghost, who is the testifier of truth. It is then incumbent upon him to so conform his life to those standards of truth. This may require fundamental changes in lifestyle and the seeking of repentance for sins committed. The Lord's power is at hand and evident. True believers will have unusual opportunities to be of service. I am convinced that those who labor unselfishly in behalf of others with no thought of remuneration will be physically and spiritually refreshed and renewed. We must prove ourselves, have the desire, and to be found worthy to assist the Lord in accomplishing His purposes with men on earth. I testify that the name of Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven whereby men may be saved, and that all men everywhere must be brought to a knowledge of this truth if they are to receive the great eternal exaltation provided by a gracious and loving Father. The Lord instructed his young prophet Joseph in October of 1831, quote, The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto men on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. I testify that we are witnessing the fulfillment of this promise and that this work given by Almighty God to His Son to proclaim, to teach, 
and to finally judge will be done with eternal love. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Brother Bowden, for that beautiful number. That's a difficult one to follow. President Brigham Young instructed the saints, The prophets have taught us that before the world was, there was a council in heaven. The council said, Let there be an earth, and let there be firmament above it and beneath it. And it was so. They said, Let there be heat and cold, and it was so. They said, Let there be spring and summer, autumn and winter, and it was so. Who will redeem the earth? Who will go forth and make the sacrifice for the earth and all that it contains? The eldest son said, Here am I. And then he added, Send me. But the second one, which was Lucifer, the son of the morning, said, Lord, here am I. Send me. I will redeem every son and daughter of Adam and Eve that lives on the earth, or that ever goes on the earth. But, said the father, that will not answer all. I give unto each and every individual his agency. All must use it in order to gain exaltation in my kingdom. Inasmuch as they have the power of choice, they must exercise that power. They are my children. The attributes which you see in me are in my children, and they must use their agency. If you undertake to save all, you must save them in unrighteousness and corruption. As these spirits have come forth from the council in heaven to take their turn on earth, they are still desiring their free agency, and in fact, they are willing to sacrifice for that freedom. We are witnessing today remarkable events occurring throughout the world, evidence of the strength of man's desire for freedom. History of man's mortal experience would indicate that the desire to be free has spiritual roots. There is an innate, overwhelming, compelling desire to be free. This desire seems to be more precious than life itself. Another desire we carry from the pre-existence is to know who we are and where we came from and what are our opportunities in this great eternal plan. Answers to these questions can really only be found in the gospel of our Lord and Savior. As we hear the cries of newly found freedoms asking for help on how it is to be used and understood, we can turn to the scriptures and read how the Lord prepared another nation for their newfound freedom. The scripture records that Israel had lived in the land of Egypt for 430 years. For a time they had prospered under the leadership of Joseph. The account reads, And Joseph died, 
and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Then the narrative continues to tell how the Israelites were placed in bondage and became slaves to the Egyptians. Moses was raised up, trained, and charged with the responsibility of freeing them from bondage and leading them to their own promised land. His task was difficult, for Israel had lived about two centuries in slavery. They had been taught many of the idolatrous practices prominent in the land in that day. It would have been impossible for Moses to lead his people without the direction of the Lord. As a way of rebuilding their faith and reminding them who was their true God, Moses was instructed to establish certain principles and practices with them to help them to return to the true doctrine. First, the Lord directed them to construct a tabernacle, which would be moved about with them from place to place as they journeyed towards their promised land. This was to be a house of worship where the sacred observances could be held. It was to be used by those who were willing to abide by the Lord's law. When the children of Israel were disobedient, the privilege of enjoying the blessings of having the tabernacle in their midst was removed from them. We read, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out into the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. When the children of Israel again found favor in the sight of the Lord, the tabernacle was moved with them from place to place as they went about their quest for the promised land. It led them by day and was their security by night. Later, when they reached their homeland, King Solomon built a magnificent temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where they could continue to enjoy an official house of worship. Israel worshipped in Solomon's temple for 350 years, but they failed to be faithful, and dissension caused conflict in the tribes. This so weakened Israel that when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made war on them, he was able to defeat them and looted the temple and destroyed it. Israel lost not only their place of worship, but for many their homes, for Nebuchadnezzar car carried them off to Babylonia as his captives. In addition to the tabernacle as a place of worship, the Lord gave to them his written law contained on tablets of stone. These commandments were written by the finger of the Lord. They were kept 
for their guidance and direction. The Ten Commandments were the basis of Hebrew law. Four of them have to do with our attitude towards God, the remaining six of our attitude toward our fellow men. Reverence for God was a basis for the Ten Commandments. Here was a foundation on which to build a society of law and order. The Lord had another way of reminding them of the blessings He had given them. He had them establish religious customs that became a part of their everyday life to signify the ways which they could express their faith in God. Israel refused to abandon these practices after being taken into captivity. They conceived that God's domination was not limited by national or political boundaries, and they would not give up their faith, even though they struggled in a strange land. Deprived of their temple, they still had their law and their religious customs to worship their God. Now, most of us will not be called on to help nations organize newly found freedoms, but all of us can be involved by making certain the light of freedom burns brightly within our own souls. We can be certain that by our actions we are an example of how freedom should be enjoyed. Following the pattern that the Lord established for ancient Israel, He has commanded us to build houses of worship for the purpose of having a place where the gospel can be taught. After understanding is achieved, we can enter into covenants with Him to be obedient to His will and in turn receive His promised blessings as a result of our faithfulness. We have temples. They now adopt the maps of nations where the worthy can enter, worship, be taught, and make covenants to serve God and abide by His law. From the very beginning of man's existence on earth, he has been taught that he must be obedient to law. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundation of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we, are, when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Prophets through the ages have taught us to be obedient to the law of the Lord and that these laws are the foundation of our existence here and will bring order out of chaos. President Wilford Woodruff once taught us, The God of heaven who created this earth and placed His children upon it gave unto them a law whereby they may be exalted and saved in the kingdom of glory. For there is a law given unto all kingdoms, and all things are governed by law throughout the whole universe. Whatever law anyone keeps, he is preserved by that law, and he receives whatever reward that law guarantees unto him. It is by the will of God that all of his children should obey the highest law, that they may receive the highest glory that is ordained for all immortal beings. But God, has not given all of, but God has given all of His children an agency to choose what law they will keep. The Lord has not been so explicit in providing us religious customs in the order of feasts and festivals to remind us of His blessings we receive from Him today. 
however the practice of having traditions to keep us close to the great heritage which is ours to enjoy, should be something every family should try to keep alive. Daily we should kneel in family prayer and study the scriptures together. Weekly we should observe the Sabbath day by attending our meetings, especially sacrament meeting, and behavior appropriate to the activities that are proper for the Lord's day. We should also gather our families together in weekly family home evenings. Perhaps it would also be appropriate to have a date with our wives each weekly, each week, to remind us of the great blessing they are in our lives. Monthly, we should fast and pay our tithes and offerings to the Lord. Semi-annually, we should make listening to the messages delivered here at General Conference a family tradition. We should organize annually family reunions to keep alive our great gospel heritage. Other traditions which should continually be part of our lives are receiving Father's blessings, patriarchal blessings, missionary preparation, temple preparation, and regular temple attendance where possible, and being together as family units on those occasions when sacred ordinances are performed on behalf of a family member. If we will build righteous traditions in our families, the light of the gospel can grow ever brighter in the lives of our children from generation to generation. We can look forward to that glorious day when we'll all be united together as eternal family units to reap the everlasting joy promised us by our eternal Father for His righteous children. Our family activities and traditions can be a beacon to the rest of the world as an example of how we should live to merit His choice blessings and live in peace and harmony until the day that He returns to rule and reign over us. This is the Lord's work in which we're engaged. God lives. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, is my solemn witness to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Today I would like to speak about a name. We're all pleased when our names are pronounced and spelled correctly. Sometimes a nickname is used instead of the real name, but a nickname may offend either the one named or the parents who gave the name. The name of which I shall speak is not a personal name, yet the same principles apply. I refer to a name given by the Lord. Thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Note carefully the language of the Lord. He did not say, Thus shall my church be named. He said, Thus shall my church be called. Years ago, its members were cautioned by the brethren who wrote, We feel that some may be misled by the too frequent use of the term Mormon Church. Before any other name is considered to be a legitimate substitute, the thoughtful person might reverently consider the feelings of the heavenly parent who bestowed that name. 
Surely every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord is precious. So each word in this name must be important, divinely designated for a reason. If we study the key words in that name, we can better understand the name's full significance. The last word in the title is saints. I smile when I remember a comment made after my call to the Corps of the Twelve. A doctor friend relayed a report made at a professional meeting that Dr. Nelson was no longer practicing cardiac surgery because his church had made him a saint. (laughs) Such a comment was not only amusing but revealing. It evidenced unfamiliarity with the language of the Bible in which the word saint is used much more frequently than is the term Christian. The word Christian appears in only three verses of the King James Version of the Bible. One verse describes the historical fact that disciples were first called Christians in in Antioch. Another quotes a sarcastic non-believer, King Agrippa. And the third indicates that one known as a Christian must be prepared to suffer. In contrast, the term saint appears in 36 verses of the Old Testament and in 62 verses of the New Testament. Paul addressed an epistle to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. To recent converts there, he said, Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul used the word saint at least once in every chapter. Despite its use in 98 verses of the Bible, the term saint is still not well understood. Some mistakenly think that it implies beatification or perfection. Not so. A saint is a believer in Christ and knows of his perfect love. The giving saint shares in a true spirit of that love, and the receiving saint accepts in a true spirit of gratitude. A saint serves others, knowing that the more one serves, the greater the opportunity for the spirit to sanctify and purify. A saint is tolerant and is attentive to the pleadings of other human beings not only to spoken messages, but to unspoken messages as well. A saint is different from an individual whose response to a concern might be a selfish, what-do-I-care attitude. A real saint responds, what? I do care. Do is an action verb, and it becomes the driving force in the reply of one who will care for another in need. A saint refrains from idleness and seeks learning by study and also by faith. Education not only helps in communication with others, but it enables one to discern truth from error, particularly through studying the scriptures. A saint is honest and kind, paying financial obligations promptly and fully, treating others as she or he would want to be treated. A saint is an honorable citizen, knowing that the very country which provides opportunity and protection deserves support, including prompt payment of taxes 
and personal participation in its legal political process. A saint resolves any differences with others honorably and peacefully and is constant in courtesy, even in traffic at the rush hour. A saint shuns that which is unclean or degrading and avoids excess, even of that which is good. Perhaps above all, a saint is reverent, reverence for the Lord, for the earth he created, for leaders, for the dignity of others, for the law, for the sanctity of life, for chapels and other buildings are all evidences of saintly attitudes. A reverent saint loves the Lord and gives highest priority to keeping his commandments—daily prayer, periodic fasting, payment of tithes and offerings—are privileges important to a faithful saint. Finally, a saint is one who receives the gifts of the Spirit that God has promised to all his faithful sons and daughters. The term latter-day is an expression especially difficult for translators who labor in languages in which there is not a good equivalent term. Some translations may suggest last day. It is true that scriptures foretell final days of the earth's temporal existence as a telestial sphere. The earth will then be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. Ultimately, the earth will become celestialized. But its last days must be preceded by its latter days. We live in those latter days, and they are really remarkable. The Lord's Spirit is being poured out upon all inhabitants of the earth precisely as the prophet Joel foretold. His prophecy was of such significance that the angel Moroni reaffirmed it to the prophet Joseph Smith. For millennia, Methods of farming, travel, and communication were largely unchanged from ancient techniques. Developments since the birth of Joseph Smith, however, have risen in remarkable contrast. Joseph Smith had long been foreordained as God's prophet for the restoration of the gospel in the fullness of times. Twenty-five years after his birth, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was officially organized. Later in that same century, the telegraph was developed, the Atlantic Ocean was first crossed by a steamship, and the telephone, the automobile, and motion pictures were invented. The 20th century has been even more extraordinary. Farming has become mechanized. Modern transportation allows travel to nearly any destination in the world within a day or two. Computers have been developed that allow the Church to serve living members and to organize information relative to progenitors who live on the other side of the veil. People throughout the world, once little concerned with family history, now search for roots of their ancestral heritage using technologies unavailable a century ago. Long-distance telephone, telefax, radio, television, and satellite communications have become routine. In these latter days, it is possible for the word of the Lord to be broadcast from world headquarters of His Church and heard in the most remote areas of the globe. The divine promise is being fulfilled that this restored gospel shall be preached 
unto every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Political changes have occurred recently in many countries. Previous restrictions of personal liberties have been relieved. The shell of spiritual confinement has been shattered. Swelling shouts of freedom fill the air. Surely the hand of the Lord is apparent. He said, I will hasten my work in its time. And that time of hastening is now. By divine directive, the title of the Church bears the sacred name of Jesus Christ, whose Church this is. He so decreed more than once. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Lord said, Ye shall call the Church in my name. And how be it, my Church, save it be called in my name? We worship God, the Eternal Father, in the name of His Son, by the power of the Holy Ghost. We know the premortal Jesus to be Jehovah, God of the Old Testament. We know him to be the chief cornerstone upon which the organization of the Church is based. We know him to be the rock from whom revelation comes to his authorized agents and to all who worthily seek him. We know that he came into the world to do the will of his Father who sent him. His divine mission was to effect the Atonement, which was to break the bands of death and enable us to receive immortality and eternal life. The living Lord's divine mission still continues. One day we will stand before Him in judgment. He has foretold that event. Whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled And if he endureth to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. We revere the name of Jesus Christ. He is our risen Redeemer. The first two words of the name the Lord chose for his earthly organization are the Church. Note that the article the begins with a capital letter. This is an important part of the title, for the Church is the official organization of baptized believers who have taken upon themselves the name of Christ. The foundation of the Church is the reality that God is our Father and that His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world. The witness and inspiration of the Holy Ghost confirm those realities. The Church is the way by which the Master accomplishes His work and bestows His glory. Its ordinances and related covenants are the crowning rewards of our membership. While many organizations can offer fellowship and fine instruction, only His Church can provide baptism, confirmation, ordination, the sacrament, patriarchal blessings, the ordinances of the temple, all bestowed by authorized priesthood power. That power is destined to bless all children of our Heavenly Father regardless of their nationality. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, 
and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth. Admission into his church is by baptism. This sacred ordinance is reserved only for children after they reach the age of accountability and for adults who are truly converted, prepared, and worthy to pass this scriptural test. Ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn. Yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in. Through the ordinance of baptism, we take upon ourselves the name of the Lord and covenant to be saints in these latter days. We covenant to live by the doctrines of the church as recorded in sacred scriptures and as revealed to prophets ancient and modern. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. These revelations include fundamental truths essential to our everlasting happiness and joy. They teach of priorities with eternal potential, such as love of God, family, mother, father, children and home, self-mastery, care of the poor and needy, service, and thoughtful consideration for others. This Church, established under the direction of Almighty God, fulfills promises made in biblical times. It is part of the restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. It has been restored and given a name by the Lord Himself. He issued this solemn warning, Let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. Remember, he added, that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care. Therefore, just as we revere His holy name, we likewise revere the name that He decreed for His Church. As members of His Church, we are privileged to participate in its divine destiny. May we so honor Him who declared, Thus shall my Church be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I pray in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.